Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, I'm very honored today to have a special guest on my podcast. It's uh, Bob Gurr, uh, Disney legend, Imagineer, uh, someone who really is uh, special in the uh, Disney circles. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, welcome to Uncle Bob's world from here to there. <laughs> Well, I wanted to start off today talking about the uh, new DVD that's coming out from APEM Publishing called uh, Bob Gurr, Turning Dreams into Reality. It's an amazing story. It kind of tells your history and your story and kind of gets into that. Can you tell us a little bit about how that project got started? Well, this project got started about three years ago. Uh, most people are quite familiar with Carleen Fee and her APEM um, Publishing and her APEM um yeah, com. Well, I've been on a lot of video interviews, uh, you know, it seemed like hundreds of them, and basically they're all about um, all the different projects that I worked on over 45 years. There's about 250 projects, big ones, little ones. And at the end of these programs, somebody always says, yeah, we know what you did, but you never tell us how you did it. Well, the how I did it is, um, I never really looked at that. And Carly was very insistent on doing this, and she she pestered me a lot. And I said, no, I don't want to do yet another uh, video on, uh, on the stuff I did. I am really not interested, but we compromised. And, and she says, well, the theme will be, what makes Bob tick? Well, okay, as long as the subject is very, very narrow, we're going to look at the how I did stuff, not the what of the stuff that was done. So that's going to be a little bit different. Then she said, uh, I want to put you on camera so that you can explain how you did this. Well, that's a little bit awkward because, um, strangely enough, all the years I was working on projects, uh, I thought everybody worked the way I did. And then over time, looking back at it, it was, well... I definitely did everything completely different. So when you look at, let's say, the general business procedures in the Waltz day and the general business procedures of today, uh, there's a blinding difference that's happened over 60 years. And when I try to explain how I did it, uh, I, I get puzzled. I'm, I'm, I can't really uh, explain it. I could certainly just tell people up front, I says, well, I'm a, I'm a flagrant uh, genius, so I taught myself, and that's that. Next question, please. Uh, <laughs> which doesn't know you got. <laughs> People still, well, we still want to know. So I said, why don't you go get some witnesses? And she laughed, and she said, what do you mean witnesses? Well, anybody that uh, worked with me. So I handed her a whole bunch of names, thinking she'd go away, and son of a gun, she came back, and she says, 
I got eight people, and they're going to be back-to-back on a weekend. This was a couple of years ago. And I thought, oh, golly, here we, we're going to have to do this thing. So she got all the principal photography done. And uh, I, uh, even though it was done at my house, because um, it was cheaper than renting a studio, and most people knew where I lived anyway, I didn't want to be in the room where she's doing this photography. I was out in the backyard running the hospitality tent, you know, and greeting people. They came and <laughs> right, left. Right. So six months went by, and I said, Carly, where's your movie? Well, um, the, her editor was kind of in over his head, and uh, the other photographers weren't too much help. So that meant, well, she's going to have to get do it in a different way. So she, uh, uh, she lived near my nephew out in Riverside, California, and he does audio engineering. He's got five, uh, and he's, he does live, live television uh, programs. You know, Dancing with the Stars, X Factor, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So he volunteered to help her with that, and then they uh, did somebody to do some editing. And then it took uh, about a year for uh, her to get a license out of the Walt Disney Company to use 34 uh, images of, uh, of the things that I worked on. Ah. Uh, it's kind of amazing how you think it's going to be easy to do a television program, or a documentary or a DVD, a lot of people do these things and they use uh, imagery and film clips that uh, is not, they don't own it. And sometimes Disney will really go after people and uh, get them to uh, buy a license that's very expensive by that time. So that was a year, uh, took time there. And then um, a couple of months ago, she finally got it down to where, all right, they do have a master... Um, a master a track, I guess if you'd call it. Okay. So uh, by that time, she'd moved to Idaho, and I said, well, you know, the television industry is uh, in the Los Angeles area, and in the San Fernando Valley part of the, um, of the Los Angeles area, is sort of the center of uh, DVD and CD production houses. So I found a production house, you know, kind of a small place, but, and they do big jobs, but they also will do a little mom and pop uh, DVD uh, uh, duplication. So um, she ordered 300 of them, and uh, in the matter of the last two weeks, uh, she and I sold all 300. That's amazing. So um, we got another order, and so I went out yesterday and picked up 1,000 of them. So uh, she'll get some, and I get some. So it looks like we got a lifetime supply of these of these DVDs. You know, people might buy them. You know, might sell a couple a week or something. So anyway, it was three years, and now there's boxes of DVDs sitting around with cases and covers, and and uh, to the extent that I can, I autograph them all. Oh, that's amazing. So that's that's sort of in a nutshell uh, what she did. That's pretty cool. It's a it's a good story. Um, it kind of makes that kind of kind of makes that feel you know a little more uh, natural in a sense where you know everything kind of came together sort of organically. And then, uh, as you probably guess, uh, I don't know whether you're a DVD producer or you've ever done editing or anything like that. Um, it's very tedious work. Takes a long time, and sometimes I've seen a lot of uh, DVD documentaries that people do where they'll. You know, they come to my house and record something, and then I hate to look at it later because it's all 
you know, low quality, poorly edited, just, you know, this awful stuff. But I can't, I can't look at somebody who's doing this for their love of Disney and say, man, your technical stuff is, oh my, mm. <laughs> it's homebrew. Uh, this DVD is uh, PBS quality. It's all, uh, it was all shot in 1080i and some of it shot in, um, in, in 1920 HD. Wow. Uh, and with my nephew's help, audio is a very hard part of editing, I guess. And he got that thing just perfect. So um, when I looked at it, I thought, wow, it's a smooth technical thing. And now I finally know how I did it. Because <laughs> it got explained by a famous pe- or semi-famous people. That's pretty cool. And it, the, the DVD is available. Uh, you can find it on 8pendisneyproducts.com. I'll put a link to it in my show notes page so you can find it easily. But, yeah, uh, that's at You can find the DVD there. It's a, it's a nice little DVD, and it, the description of it makes it sound enticing. Your description made it sound even better, but just reading the description myself, I was like, whoa, this sounds like it could be really cool. And it's not a terribly expensive thing. You know, it makes a great Christmas gift, people, you know, as you, uh, as you mm-hmm. listen to this. So if I could, to turn to you just a little bit more... So you um you became you worked for Walt Disney himself uh, at some period of at some period in your life. How did you come to work for Walt Disney? But basically, in uh, 1954, uh, in the early fall, the Los Angeles Times had a uh, a big uh, illustration of a new amusement park to be called Disneyland. And at about the same time, um, I had a. a a friend with a family, their name was Iwerks, and of course this is the family of Iwerks, who uh, he and Walt uh, pretty much were the first guys starting to develop animation back in the uh, early 20s. And uh, this Iwerks family lived on my paper route uh, during World War II, and uh, Iwerks had two sons, one a little bit older and one my age, and uh, the younger fellow and I were buddies all through uh, high school together. And they would have their after-church typical Midwest um, Sunday dinner. Up, and they'd invite me over about once a month. And up I worked, she used to love to make little 16-millimeter black-and-white movies of activities on the studio, uh, Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, their, their back lot. And uh, in this one occasion, there was a little car that had no body, just you know, like a little tiny amusement car, running around the back lot. And then shortly thereafter, I get a phone call from a job placement officer at the Art Center College of Design, where I'd graduated in 1952, and he said, uh, go out to the Disney studio and meet Mr. Irvine there in about 20 minutes. Um, on the way out to the studio from my regular job, I thought, you don't suppose that amusement park picture and the little car with no body running around on the back lot at the Disney Studios in Burbank has any connection. And since um, I was trained as a car body designer, not an engineer, um, that was a good guess. So by the time I got out and talked to Mr. Irvine, who uh, was running the entire design at Disneyland at the time, Sure enough, that's what they wanted. They wanted a, a little car body design to fit this little chassis that a local shop had developed. So that's how it started. Some of the detail I knew the story, but I, some of the details I had never heard before. That's interesting how you, the iWorks family figured in there and everything. That's that's kind of neat, neat little piece. 
So let me ask you, what was your what was your favorite thing to work on? I mean, I know you worked on a lot of different things. Do you have a favorite that you uh, that you really enjoyed doing? Well, I would I would almost say two hundred and fifty jobs. You know, the little itty bitty ones and the great big massive ones that might take four years. I'd say uh, I enjoyed almost all of them. There was probably only maybe one or two that were kind of a uh, the proposal was kind of dumb, and the uh, thing really never did work work out. Some of them were for Disney, and some of them were later. Uh, but in the main, um, I either was lucky enough that Walt always threw stuff that was really going to work in my direction while he was still alive. Uh, and at the same time, um, after I left Disney, I had my own company for 20 years. Uh, I had the ability to turn down work. Um, when a proposal would come along, you know, it might be a big thing in Las Vegas or something. And I was very sensitive to uh, who else is on the team. Huh. And I'd, I'd respond to a proposal for, you know, some very expensive work with big income. I'd say, okay, who else is on this team? And if the team had some uh, C and D players, I was not interested. I only want to go with the A players because those are the people that do stuff really, really good. So uh, it's hard to say, you know, I got 250 grandchildren. You want me to pick out one? <laughs> I didn't expect that you would have one in particular. Uh, you know, looking at everything that you've done, obviously your body of work is, well, is quite fantastic. Yeah. Well, okay. There, there's, there's probably four that uh, I could narrow it down. Uh, I think quite obviously uh, uh, the earliest one that uh, turned out to be iconic is the first Disneyland monorail. Um, that job came along very, very quickly in 1958, and still today, uh, both Disney parks in America here have monorail. Right. And the monorail always seems to be a super advanced, uh, you know, idea of transportation of tomorrow. But it actually, the look of that thing started out with about a 10-minute sketch on my my kitchen table uh, one day, and simple as that. Uh, so that's a significant one. Walt was so proud to have that and show it off to the world. Then um, another thing, uh, the Abraham Lincoln animated figure for the New York World's Fair was the uh, really the very first believable uh, human that was a machine. Not only that, it was a serious thing. I mean, it was, it was the President of the United States. Not only that, it was President Lincoln which was an extremely risky project to do, but he threw it my way. I figured all the mechanical stuff out in about 90 days. Hmm. Um, then, of course, there's, there's two more. There was uh, the King Kong for Universal Studios in, in uh, Los Angeles. That was a 1986 job, and that was the first giant figure, animated figure in the world. That was 30 feet tall. Wow. And people don't do big stuff like that. Certainly good, he never did anything, that, you know, Big like that. No. And it was a fun job. Uh, had very little technical difficulty doing it, and it wowed people for about 22 years before it burned up in a fire when, uh, when part of the studio uh, back lot burned down. Right. And right. then uh, I guess I could say the one in Las Vegas, the, uh, the Treasure Island Pirate Battle Show that was there for about, I guess, 14 years. Uh, great big ship. Two ships get in a big fight, and one of them sinks. And then, and then the, it comes back up, you know, the show Lisa. Again, a super risky thing. 
Your underwater equipment is big, heavy. You got corrosion problems. You're out there in the desert heat. You got wind. You got uh, uh, propane gas fires. You have explosions. You have live actors and actresses. Uh, super risky thing. But again, uh, that was one of my favorite jobs just because it was so outrageous. We didn't have any trouble building that thing and uh, starting to run it. That's so those are, those are four um, wildly different things. I would say those are those would be the favorites. That, that's incredible, and and each of those has their own u- unique story. You were kind of hinting at around them. I know uh, for the monorail story, there was a there was a story that uh, Richard Nixon, the vice president at the time, was there at the dedication. And I had heard a story that actually Walt Disney was running the controls, but I've recently come to realize that was actually you running the controls when uh, when they first ran it. Is that correct? Well, yeah. When uh, Walt wanted to show um, show off the uh, monorail. Uh, to his friend Dick, you know, he, he called him Dick, you know. I got copies of the letters he would write back and forth to the White House. They were, they were good friends. Um, Walt uh, would introduce us all around, you know, he and the wife and the two girls, and said, uh, well, Dick, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the steam guy. I like to drive the steam locomotives, but uh, Bobby here is the, uh, is the modern electrical age, so I let him drive. So that, obviously, Walt was not doing the driving. In fact, ah. we'd only gotten the train on the um, testing only for about two weeks, and the train broke down every day except the night before the ribbon cutting. <laughs> so we were barely ready to, uh, you know, to, to run it. So I didn't even have a chance to train uh, the monorail supervisor, and he didn't get a chance to train any of the drivers. Amazing. So the compromise was that in the middle of the night they made me a um, cast member uniform for a monorail. So <laughs> I was I was well dressed the next day for the television program and the ribbon cutting because I, I looked just like a monorail driver. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that was a detail that escaped me on that, or I think it's escaped a lot of people that you were actually the driver and you were you were dressed in the costume. That, that's cool. Yeah, you know, I just you know, that's what we needed to do. Uh, so we just did it. And, uh, you know, I understand the Secret Service wasn't too happy at that moment, too, since they uh, they had let the, pre- the vice president out of their sight for a short time. Um, even though well, he's... you know, um, as, I, as I read upon American history, uh, presidents pride themselves on attempting to escape from their guards. <laughs> uh, Habs all the time, all the families are in the White House, wherever they travel or something... Anytime a president can suddenly escape them, uh, that, they consider that quite a coup. Um, this was totally unplanned, but uh, the fact that uh, as I drove off of the monorail, the Secret Service was just standing around because uh, nobody told anybody that we were going to go drive it. Walt was just showing it off uh, to his friend Dick. And Walt said, well, Bobby, give him a ride. So I drove off. Um, and in those days, the train would go out and make a slight right turn, then a left turn, come down over the subride, the waterfalls, which meant you got a good view of the platform. And uh, Nixon immediately saw their Secret Service guys were all on the platform, which meant none were in the train. And uh, he gave out a couple of very choice four-letter words about that, which horrified me because that just indicated I just kidnapped the Vice President of the United States. You know, you don't do stuff like that. Um, so, actually, he enjoyed it, uh, but I didn't, uh, as you can probably understand. I can imagine. Then, um, we came around, 
getting ready to get in the, slow down the station, and uh, and the girls wanted to go again. Well, I said, well, give them another ride. And I was horrified because th this is only the, the second lap the train has ever done on its own power without breaking down. Now we're going to do it a third time. And, and the, the deal was we had to park the train at that platform because we're going to cut a ribbon on live TV, so we don't want to mess that up. So driving through the station, the Secret Service were trying to jump on a moving train. <laughs> Desperate. <laughs> Very funny. Um and uh, and then we came around and uh, for the you know the second lap around stopped. We all got out, went down to the bottom of the platform. Nixon stops, turns around, and looks up at the train. All the Secret Service are sitting in the train. Not one of them had the sense enough to get out of the train and follow him down the exit. <laughs> so um, I kind of looked at the whole situation. I thought, well, so much for the palace guard. I don't think they're they're very good at what they do, but. <laughs> Nixon got a big kick out of it anyway with Walt. That's pretty cool. That's a that's a good story. Yeah, that, that's one of those that just kind of you know kind of tells the tale. I've I've talked about um, presidential relationships with uh, with the Disney company, and Nixon obviously is the most interesting one, um, just because of his relationship with Walt. For those of you who don't know, turning to the uh, the Lincoln um, audio animatronic, that one is actually on display at at One Man's Dream in uh, Disney's um, Hollywood Studios in in Florida. If you want to see it, it's there. Um, so it's really pretty cool. You can kind of see this piece of this this piece of work that uh, that Bob did, and uh, and take a look at it. It's it's kind of intri intriguing to look at it because there's no there's no body. It's just really the head and then the hands, and you have all these the mechanical parts that make it work. So uh, neat to neat to see. Yeah, that uh, there were um, two and a half Lincolns built. I th yeah, I think the one that's down there in Florida now. It's been uh, in a number of different places in the last twenty five years. It was sort of ignored for a long time, and then I think it was kind of disassembled, and I think years ago they, they put it together at one Disney facility, and, I, and now it's gone to the um, E23 Expo a couple of times, I think. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, maybe it's down in Florida. I have lost track of where it went, but that's, that's, that'd be the Lincoln that was used um, at uh, Disneyland. That was, that was not the one that was used at the World's Fair. Okay. Yeah, the one at the World's Fair. I think that one, if I understand history correctly, it went missing for some period of time until it was found in a in a box in a crate somewhere in a on a warehouse. No, this is an example of uh, all the people that do podcasts. They all make up stories, ah. and then everybody quotes the previous stories, and all of these stories are completely wrong. Okay, <laughs> and I'm I'm glad yeah, to be wrong sometimes. Uh, all right, if you want to know the real story of the of the Lincoln that was in the New York World's Fair. Yes. Uh, we bought it. We bought it back uh, to um, our uh, Maple Studios in Glendale, California, while the, uh, the Lincoln Number no. Two was at Anaheim and stayed there for a number of years until it was completely rebuilt, uh, being built out of uh, pirate ride parts. Um, so the, the real Lincoln was all disassembled, and uh, the main body of it was uh, up in a mezzanine at Maple. For years and years and years um, in, a, in, in uh, a box, which we call the casket. So one day, I think around 1977, I think, something like that, uh, the, the shop guy said, okay, everything's going to the dump tomorrow if uh, we know that you really like that Lincoln, because uh, you designed all the mechanicals. Um, we're not supposed to do this 
but if you go up on the mezzanine, we'll look the other way for 20 minutes. If you see any parts you like, take them, and we won't say anything, because the rest of us are going to get jumped anyway. Oh, wow. So I grabbed grab the thing. I grabbed the, uh, the pelvis frame and the upper body. Uh, the mechanical part, of course. And uh, took it home and kept my mouth shut. I had that uh, for years and years and years. Uh, yeah, from 77 on up to um, about 2007 or 8, Diane Disney Miller was getting ready to build her museum in San Francisco, and uh, she found out I, I had had that first Lincoln, you know, the mechanical upper body part. And she said, well, I sure would like to have that someday. So, um, and then her uh, younger son, Walter, he, he found out about it. So every time I talked to him about motorcycles or something, he'd say, uh, Bob, you know, you're, uh, my mom's getting pretty close to getting that museum done. You know, uh, don't, don't forget us on the, on the Lincoln. Sure enough, then, uh, one day I said, okay, they're about ready to have it. So Walter said, well, I'll send somebody over to your house and I'll, We'll personally pick it up and we'll drive it up to San Francisco and give it to my mom. Wow. So uh, that frame is on display in a beautiful display uh, case in uh, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. It's also got a, um, a reduced size uh, assembly drawing of the Lincoln that you can actually see the whole, see the whole thing. It's also got a, a sculpture. In, in green clay that Blaine um, Gibson did. Nice, it's a nice little display. Okay. So the story you just told me is completely inaccurate, and I just told you the accurate story of the World's Fair Lincoln. Well, thank you, thank you for setting me straight. That's that's news, and I, I like that. I, I like hearing those pieces. You know, when I learn something new, um, and it just reminds you that you can't believe everything you hear or read. That's that's the short, right. long and short of it. Yeah, this is what goes on all these years. Is um, I read so many blogs and I and I uh, hear so many uh, podcasts. Uh, virtually complete inaccurate history, almost as bad as uh, the PBS program on Walt that was done last year. You know, a four-hour program full yep. of inaccuracies and wrong opinions. So this kind of history goes on at the mom and pop level, and it goes on at the national television level too. And it's it's really too bad because I think the history is is really is really interesting, and it's it's kind of sad that we get these these pieces of wrong information. Um, and you know I'm happy to be corrected anytime anybody hears anything. Please do let me know. Um, I you know. Yeah, I, it's a sad thing. I don't know if you saw the Walt Disney PBS program. I did actually. Yeah, I, I watched it. Well, several times there were several journalists uh, analyzing uh, Walt's thinking. And they would make a statement, well, and then Walt was starting this project, he was thinking, mm. and then they, they would say something, and that was complete hogwash. I can assure you, I've worked with him for 12 years, and I'm talking with him, looking right at it, and I have no idea what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. So for somebody to come along later with a, you know, like a name like Neil Gabler or somebody else that had never met him, ne- never knew anything about him, to show the public on PBS this is what Walt was thinking it just shows that um, basically historians are worthless people because the only good history stop and think about this is that a big event happens the newspaper the next morning is the most accurate thing that will ever be written Uh, because it's usually written from somebody that was there was a witness to something and they wrote it up 
So it's got little inaccuracies just because of the high speed that, that, that a newspaper will go. Uh, and then those stories are amplified by historians, because historians, what they do is they, they're called researchers. They research all previous uh, material. And then with their own filter and their own agenda, they reconstruct the story based upon their filtered agenda. And then that goes on ad infinitum for thousands of years. So pretty soon you, um, you wind up that uh, a lot of history is totally incorrect. But if you ever get a hold of an old yellow newspaper, now you got the exact story. And that's a great point. Um, one of the things, just an aside, one of the things I like to do sometimes is go and try and research history to actually see what history looked like at that time. That's a, that's a great point. And looking at uh, old newspapers, a lot of them are archived. You can find them online in some cases. You can find them in old, old microfiches still. Um, so you can go look up, uh, look up history. Um, right. Those are, the only, uh, those are the only reliable uh, research material. A person should never research another person's book. Hmm. Interesting. That's that's a great point. Good good uh, wisdom too. <laughs> Thank you. So I really just had one more question for you, and it was about the uh, the twenty thousand leagues under the sea ride. Um, and I, I know you had some involvement in that one. That was a very massive project. From what I gather, it sounded like it was a bit of a challenge to to uh, construct the the boats and and make it all work. No, there wasn't any challenge to build a boat and make it work. My goodness, a, a boat is a boat is a boat. Sure. Uh, the um, George McGinnis, uh, one of our best industrial designers at, uh, that Disney, he designed the overall styling of the boat. In other words, they, all the appearance that you'd see both inside and outside. You know, really cool looking boat. You know, it had a really sinister Jules Verne look to it. Um, the contract was given to uh, Morgan Yacht Company in Clearwater, Florida, to uh, build the hull of the submarine. Uh, out of uh, steel and fiberglass. They had a steel floor about three inches thick, okay. and then it was all done with uh, fiberglass uh, plywood ribs and a great big heavy uh, fiberglass hull that had all the, the, the external features, you know, that, of the look of the boat. And uh, then the boat was uh, moved from uh, Clearwater, Florida, out of Morgan Yacht, and was taken to um, a company called Tampa Ship, in uh, Tampa, Florida, and it was a big company. They were doing uh, railroad locomotives for us. They were doing all kinds of ships, and then they took on the submarine project. And then I was assigned to the project as Disney's uh, sort of visiting resident engineer for uh, production in uh, at Tampa Ship. So I would go back and forth between Los Angeles and Tampa Ship, and uh, we would have drawings coming out every few days from uh, Disney, sent to Florida, and then I would administer the, um, the documentation for the work that Tampa Ship was going to do to put in all the functioning equipment. In other words, we, we put in uh, all the electrical stuff, electrical propulsion, lighting, control, uh, put in all the interior uh, decorations, speakers, all that sort of stuff. And then uh, at the same time, um, I was given the job to calculate the amount of lead that we would put in the ship and how it would be uh, balanced. Um, so when we put it in the water, it rides at the right ride height uh, with it uh, pitched completely level. So uh, that was kind of a fun thing, is to 
in lies the hull to do a weight distribution of uh, sinking the submarine down far enough so it looked like a submarine and ordering enough uh, lead and then directing guys to install the lead. And it took about an afternoon and the thing just sunk down in the water and just came out absolutely perfect. So awesome. uh, I have said there was ne wasn't any challenge. It was just a case of, well, there's work to do. We do it every day and we delivered it on the day we that uh, we were required to do it, which was August 13, 1971, and put her on a trailer and drove her from Tampa to Orlando and got ready in the next day or two and put it in the water. There you go. Well, Bob, I appreciate you taking some time to ch chat with me about uh, Life and Times and uh, about your uh, the new DVD that's out, uh, Bob Gurr, Turning Dreams into Reality, available from Ape Pen Publishing. I really appreciate you taking some time to come on with me today. Yeah, the, uh, when people buy this DVD, what you're actually going to learn is that there was such a difference the way Walt uh, got people to do stuff. Um, let's put it this way. Today, most people are on a team, they're in meetings, and they don't want to take responsibility for their own individual decisions. They kind of keep themselves safely buried in the group, of course. But in the Walt Disney days, everybody took responsibility for their decisions. They made their own decisions, not even waiting for a meeting, and it was up to Walt to catch up with them in case uh, the decision was wrong. So that meant we could go at a really, really high speed. I didn't realize till later that I was basically a design dictator. Uh, what that meant was Walt says, Bobby, I need a something, and then he'd describe it. And then I'd say, well, okay. Okay, here's how it's going to be. And then I would be the principal designer, and then I would start getting drawings made and working with a shop. And uh, it never dawned on me that uh, in later years, you have to have everything approved, you have to have it all budgeted, you have to have a working team, and it has to be analyzed, and uh, financial control and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's why things take so long to get done today, but back in uh, the early days, um, I simply charged ahead, and Walt sort of watched. And I had a very supportive boss who sort of kept the financial people away. And the end result is we focused more on getting the product built than making a pile of documents, which seems to be the case today. You have to have everything fully documented. We documented just enough that we could build stuff and just build it really fast. So the exact way I did that is revealed in the DVD. Beautiful. Thanks again, and I appreciate your uh, your time. Okay, my pleasure. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. 
Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.